Kim Kardashian has great talent after all. And publishers spanked by Facebook's changing newsfeed algorithm. Tom, I'll bet you never would have guessed I could get spanked and newsfeed algorithm in the same sentence. You are the king of, of <laughs> titles, honestly. <laughs> this is episode 45 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom Asacker, but I'm thinking I should have Mark change my name. He's so good at naming. <laughs> Tom spanked Asacker. <laughs> Kim Kardashian has great talent after all. Who would have guessed, Tom? This, uh. is from, this is from a piece in Vox. It's actually a video, which is, which is interesting because we have to actually watch the whole video to get the gist of it rather than skim the piece. Um, but I'll tell you, I just found this fascinating because this finally put into context what I have been unable to put into words, which is, you know, people are so shocked at the the lack of demonstrable talent that the Kardashian-Jenner sisters convey, and yet they are huger than huge, more famous than famous. Famous, in fact, for being famous, a la the infamous Zsa, Zsa Gabor, but so much more, Tom. Yeah, well, look, there are a few definitions of talent. One is a special natural ability or aptitude. And in that regard, mm -hmm. I agree with Oprah, they don't have any talent. However, there's another definition, and it's a capacity for achievement or success. And there is no disputing their talent in that <laughs> regard, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, they've got a TV show, they've got fashion and makeup lines, they've got endorsements, they've got mobile apps. Kim alone, supposedly, reportedly, has a net worth of $85 million and made $52 million last year alone. Wow. I mean, that's just amazing. They are, uh, regardless of the fact that they're not singers, they're not actors, they're not dancers, they are experts in um, spontaneity, in what the video calls the illusion of intimacy. I love that. <laughs> and Look, what the video right. also calls perceived friendship. I yeah. <laughs> Look, they are very talented marketers. And what is marketing? And I think people don't understand how the nature of marketing has changed. In an age of scarcity, marketing equals information transfer. Brand X provides this unique benefit, blah, blah, blah. In an age of abundance, marketing is about creating powerful associations between people's aesthetic sensibilities, their identity, and your brand. I'm not really mm -hmm. sure why this is such a difficult concept for people to grasp. Maybe you can help me. Well, I think here's the problem people have. They say, well, okay, you know, we recognize that Kim, let's take Kim as an example, is brand Kim. She's a brand mm -hmm. who's a human. But then I flip it around. I say, okay, well, let's take the lesson that you just prescribed, right? How can a brand apply that? How can a brand be uh, as much, a, uh, you know, how can, if, Kim, if Kim's a person who's a brand, but a brand can't be a brand who's a person. And bringing human qualities to a brand is not the same as being a human with qualities, right? That was a mouthful. Look, it's simple. We're moving through the world. We're looking for things that immediately, mm -hmm. and, I, and I emphasize that word, immediately connect with us. 
with our specific desires. And due to the sheer amount of stimuli, we're tuning everything else out. I don't think people mm-hmm. realize this. So well, this is what right? this is what the, even the video talked about. This is how we respond to advertising. We recognize it as advertising. It's tagged as advertising. Uh, we know it's trying to persuade us, and we put it into a category designed to be ignored. That's it. So what do these people do? So they they create this subtle way of of, of associating themselves, their identities with fashion, with makeup, mobile games, endorsements. And they do that while holding, you know, this phony, I'm your friend and want to hang out with you, this image. They hold it together. And it's funny because, you know, Paris Hilton, she could have had that. Yeah. But she but she didn't manage it. And it, it wouldn't have been called parasocial. It would have been called parasocial <laughs> interaction, right? <laughs> but wait, how phony is this really? It doesn't promise to be any deeper than it is. Isn't it genuine as far as it goes? Yeah, look, there are three approaches to sales and marketing today, right? One is you play people for fools by baiting them with something they desire, a deal, low prices, whatever it is. And then over time... You take advantage of their cognitive limitations by subtly sticking it to them, all right? That's one way, and that's what a lot of people are doing. The second, you know, number two is you play people by for fools by making them believe that you are like them and that mm-hmm. you like them. That's what the Kardashians are doing, <laughs> right? Uh, we like you. I like you. That's a bunch of bull, too. And then there's the third way, which very few brands are doing, and I don't understand why, maybe because they don't believe it, but it's to actually be and feel what your audience's pains and desires are and work like hell to improve their lives. So those are the three. We're talking about number two, which is fool them into believing that you like them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what does the third one have to do with the Kardashians at all? Nothing. That's my <laughs> point. Because you just okay. said, well, maybe that's not fooling people. Yeah, they're fooling people too. Okay, that's a good point. So then if I'm a brand, how is a brand, to, of those three options, I recognize the third one is really the pot of gold, but the second one is the one we're talking about now. Right. What is a brand supposed to learn from this? How can a brand emulate this? This is not just hiring a celebrity spokesperson. This goes well beyond that, right? Yeah, but look, the, the great brands have figured this out a long time ago. When Nike grabs a celebrity spokesperson and they throw them in some powerful ad, and you create this association of just do it with Michael Jordan or, you know, th- that, that whole thing, that feeling that that creates is, is actually fueling your identity. Mm-hmm. And see, when the Kardashians do that, when they say, oh, I use this and I use that, and when, you, uh, when somebody buys that, that is creating their identity, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily the Kardashians. They're saying, I'm like them. I like them. I'm like them. I like Michael Jordan. I'm like Michael Jordan. Complete delusion. But that's how this is how marketing works mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Mm. You're listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Publishers spanked by Facebook's changing oh. newsfeed algorithm. Spanked yet again, Tom, I think we have to say. Yeah, I know. We'll have to talk. Publishers, about- have, <laughs> publishers have very red bottoms at this point. <laughs> They must have seen it coming. (laughs) Well, here's the news from the piece. Uh, I've got a couple pieces here, but the first one here is in Recode. Today, Facebook announced that it's tweaking its algorithm yet again so that users see less stuff shared by publishers and brands and more stuff from family and friends, a.k.a. Tom, the reason why we're on Facebook to begin with. Right. 
This isn't a nightmare scenario for publishers, but it is pretty grim. Websites and news organizations are leaning more and more on Facebook for growing their audiences, and Facebook just weakened a key traffic driver for them. Today's announcement reflects uh, the risk of making your distribution reliant on a third-party platform, though Facebook says places uh, through though Facebook says place whoa, though Facebook says <laughs> This is an awful sentence. That's the problem. Forget that sentence. Let's just go Let's on. Let's just go on. So um, what's going? What's interesting to me about this particular article is at the end, they go to the publishers and they say, hey, so Facebook just changed the algorithm that affects your distribution. What comments do you have? And to a person, their comment w amounted to no comment. Yeah, of course. Which I think is so telling. Yeah, nobody's going to say, oh, we screwed up. Look, so here's another thing that I don't understand, all right? So I didn't understand why people don't get what's going on in the first case. Mm -hmm. I don't get why they don't get what's going on here. What is so difficult for people to grasp that Facebook is focused on Facebook's desires, Right. period? And you know what their right. desire is? If you watch these people, you can see what it is. It's really simple. They want to own the internet. Sure. Make no mistake about that. So... Will they experiment connecting their audience with content producers, seeing how that sucks people in? Sure. But if their audience says, uh-huh, we don't really want all that, Facebook will change. They'll pivot, to use you know, the terminology of the Internet. Right. Attention is Facebook's ultimate currency, not Money. That's the interesting thing, I think, about this situation and the way publishers are responding to it. Publishers are responding as if to say, and this is echoed in the Michael Wolf piece that we're going to talk about as well, but, oh, we got lured in. Facebook lured us in with this promise of distribution, mm. and boy, we got great distribution. And then they went and they changed the rules, but gosh, we're the ones with the content that we're creating. We're the ones with all the premium stuff. We're the ones that are giving this away to them for free, and now we're being abused as a result. And the way I look at it, the way I, I look at it and say, look, you know, once upon a time, there was the newspaper and the local car dealer, and that was it, right? Right. And the newspaper had all the leverage because the newspaper had all the attention. The newspaper was media in that media-client relationship. That's right. Well, in a relationship between Facebook and publishers, who's the media and who's the client? No, that's right. Listen, that's just what I'm Facebook's telling you. Facebook's the media. Uh, the, the, the publisher is the client. The club publisher's saying, I'm being abused. No, the publisher doesn't hold any cards. Facebook holds all the cards because Facebook is the media platform, exactly the platform newspapers used to be once upon a time. That's what I don't understand is why can't they see this? Why can't they see Facebook's intent? You know, why? And you know what? You can make your decision based on what their desires and intent is. Sure. But you can become overwhelmed as well. Like I, I really believe they were th it's their thinking, their own desires that overwhelm their thinking. And so they convince themselves that, oh, it's in our best interest to do this. You know, it's, it's no different, really. Well, indeed, it may be. It may have been. It may still be. Who knows? But it's no different than all of the writers and consultants who wanted attention, who gave away their content in exchange for attention on what? Huffington Post, Forbes, Harvard Business Review. Right. It doesn't right. matter. And you know what? It may work temporarily. But you don't just build your long-term future on that. You have to have a plan B that says, okay, I've got attention. What do I do with it yeah. now? What's the business model built what around that? What do I that? do with it now?
Exactly. You, you and I were amused. We haven't discussed this yet, but we were amused by Michael Wolff's take on this in USA Today because Michael Wolff, of course, is the notorious curmudgeon who <laughs> hates everyone and yeah, everything. He wants everybody and to pull their content off, right? <laughs> he wants, he said, I mean, this whole piece in USA Today is essentially an I told you so to publishers. Uh, without any solution for publishers. <laughs> Likewise, the media's assumption about how it would survive in a digital world were founded on a Facebook partnership. With it, life as we know it appears to end. <laughs> this is not, as it happens, the first shoot-yourself-in-the-head mistake my, made by publishers in navigating the digital market. That original sin, so incomprehensible now as to be almost never discussed, was to give all of the publishing products away for free. That happened because, well, really... For no other reason than that technology companies said this was the future and everyone was doing it. And I, I again, if you read this entire piece by Michael about this change and you ask yourself, okay, Michael, what should I do now? Don't roll back the clock by 15 years and say, if only we had continued to try and make people pay for things they refused to pay for. And oh, by the way, they refused to pay for those things. <laughs> I know. You know, tell us what to do now. And he has no answer at all. No, of course he, he the, doesn't. The, no, the, no one does. No one he does. He said the, the fault here, taking issue with the horror now being expressed by the news community, is not Facebook's. Facebook, philosophically indifferent to news, is just tending its business. This is your point. No, the fault is on the part of publishers who, against all reason and without the wherewithal to imagine an alternative, embraced Facebook. And I, I think, look, I think the jury's out. I think in the long run, embracing Facebook, they have no choice. They can't turn their back on this traffic, on this distribution, even if it's not as great as it otherwise would be. They don't have a choice. That's like saying, don't, you, you said they want to own the internet, Facebook. Well, that's like saying, don't go on the internet at all. I mean, who would give such ignorant <laughs> advice? Not even Michael Wolf. Well, in my view. it's easy, isn't it? in retrospect, to look at these things and say, oh, wow, what a mistake everybody made. <laughs> Here's one other point I want to add in, too. This is from my friend Chris Balf at Red Seed Ventures. He had a, a take on this, and I thought this was interesting. Reportedly, the problem that Facebook is trying to solve is a reduction in the amount of personal sharing on Facebook. People are posting lots of things to Instagram or Snapchat, but not as much to Facebook. While I agree that this is a long-term problem for the platform, I do not agree that the solution is to show people more pictures of their friends' kids. To me, the bar for posting personal content on Facebook has become too high in a world of informal and disappearing content. His point is that sharing is now easier than it ever was. Mm -hmm. Platforms in which you can share on an ephemeral basis if need be, the slightest little thing are you know, uh, abundant, and Facebook's unique selling proposition is not as strong as it used to be. So they have to fight harder to sustain the fundamental thing that people do on Facebook. As a result, to your point, this is not about you, Mr. Publisher, and we're sorry that this doesn't suit you, but we need to, uh, uh, to watch our back here. Yeah, look, they are, they are looking at massive amounts of data trying to understand how we keep these people engaged with this platform and grow it over time. And if they see anything on the platform that is not contributing to engagement, mm -hmm. enhancing engagement, they are going to replace it with something else. They don't care. It's about data. They are managing by data. 
They don't and care I love about the information or anything else. <laughs> Tom, I love the advice that says, look, what do you have to worry about? Uh, content that spreads, viral content will be as viral tomorrow as it was yesterday. Just create more stuff that goes viral. Create better content. <laughs> I love that advice, that anything that ends in create better content, I just love. Absolutely. Create better news. <laughs> better news. Well, that's I'm all for that. Rants and raves, Tom. What do you have this week? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I think this is a media rant. You'll, you'll, if you, maybe you'll think so too. I mean, it smells of some kind of desperation to me. So, so have you heard about the grand opening this week of Kellogg's All Day Cereal Cafe in New York? No. Oh, yeah. So it's based in <laughs> Times Square and it's called, are you ready for this creativity? It's called Kellogg's New York. So that's pretty oh, great. clever. According, yeah, that's awesome. Now listen to the press Where release. is it again? Where it's is it? It's in Times Square. <laughs> okay. It's so, in New York. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, they didn't. Oh, they meant, yeah, New York City. It should have been called <laughs> Kellogg's New York City because we might have thought it was in Buffalo. Anyway, okay. according to the official press release on Kellogg's website, listen to how it's titled, the press release, A Serial State of Mind. Kellogg's opens first ever permanent cafe in new york city now i like how they added the word permanent <laughs> that, <laughs> as if to say hey look this isn't a temporary media stunt or perhaps they're trying ah. to convince themselves that cereal is a permanent fixture in the american diet i don't know right. what's going on but that word was funny and anyway the press release it kind of reads like a joke because the very first line of the press release is the heart of new york city is the new home of cereal innovation and delicious experimentation. <laughs> it goes. I can, Tom, I can see the brainstorming. I can see the whiteboard now. I can oh, see the little post-it notes stuff now. kills me. It goes on to say that Kellogg's has teamed up now with culinary heavyweights and award-winning chefs to create these new cereal innovations. Quote, proving that a few innovative ingredients such as lime zest, marshmallows, and blueberry jam can go a long way when it comes to brightening a bowl of cereal, unquote. <laughs> I know you think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Because, you know, here's the biggest joke of all. How much do you think a bowl of cereal is going to set you back if you go into this cafe? Uh, I'm going to say $9.95. Well, very close. Eight, around 8 bucks. So who knows, Mark? Maybe mm -hmm. in our age of rapidly dwindling attention, a five-year lease in Times Square is a wise marketing investment, <laughs> but I wouldn't bet on it, at least not around cereal. Uh, $8.95 for the uh, bowl and about $15 for the milk, though. That's the problem. Well, you, listen, it would be worth it if they gave you like a commemorative spoon, New York spoon <laughs> that you could take with you. Because a lot of people, well, at least my mother used to collect those spoons. Remember back in the day? And of they course would, I do. Yeah, so nobody does that anymore. So maybe they can start that up again and turn into a All right, spoon I'm, company. I'm moving my spoon collection out of the way of this podcast <laughs> right now. All right, so I have a couple. I have actually one rant and a couple of raves, but I'll try and go through them pretty quick. The rant, and I know you're going to be familiar with this, um, it's from, uh, from MediaPost. Complaints about PBS rainy night fireworks, fireworks footage are all wet. Oh, boy. You heard about this oh, controversy, I, I assume? Yeah, that's funny. Isn't this amazing? <laughs> that, so what happened apparently was that there was bad weather in D.C. on the occasion of the PBS uh, fireworks uh, show. 
so to make things a little more telegenic, I guess they subbed some video from 2015 into the 2016 telecast, which was fine for everybody except those close enough to actually watch the whole show in person, Tom. But evidently, <laughs> rather than look out the window, they preferred to watch it on television, which is a whole other conversation. And they oh were distressed at the fact that what they saw on television was significantly more colorful and entertaining and telegenic than what they were seeing outside their own window. To which I say, turn off the TV, go to the door, go outside, number one. Number two, I'm shocked, shocked. <laughs> what, that people think that TV's things, real? That things <laughs> are unreal on television. I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm absolutely shocked. I, you know, these same people who've seen photos of delicious-looking food on a website or looked at a beautiful photograph of a Victoria's Secret model in a magazine, <laughs> these people convinced that reality TV is real despite the fact that the people you're watching are surrounded by a boom, a sound guy, two cameramen, and a production assistant while they're being real. I'm just shocked altogether. Oh, you should that... be scared because they're going to vote for the leader of the free world soon. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think the funniest part, the point that this guy, uh, the, the author Adam uh, Buckman made in the article, was that the photo sent out by PBS to promote a Capital Fourth is pretty obviously enhanced. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my rant right that's there. Beautiful. I have a couple of quick uh, raves for you. First of all, uh, this just came out, I think, yesterday. Uh, a piece from um, uh, Media Shift. And it's titled, Get Ready for More Podcasts on YouTube. A lot more thanks to Libsyn. Libsyn, um, many folks know, is the platform that allows you to syndicate, to, to host and syndicate your podcast on various platforms. And they have a new feature on Libsyn with the check of a box, apparently. It will send your audio to YouTube along with your, your uh, thumbnail image. So... Um, all the crap that you can get now on YouTube, there's going to be that much more crap on YouTube because everyone with the podcast is going to send every episode of their podcast down to YouTube. Now, this is silly only if you believe that YouTube is for some kind of premium quality video and not for everything under the sun. As you may know, Tom, a lot of people l discover a lot of music on YouTube oh, and a lot yeah. of music they discover on YouTube is not music videos. It's music with thumbnail photos. Absolutely. It's just still photos. So people are doing a lot of listening to YouTube right now. The idea that they would use that platform for podcasting is, is beyond question. I know personally someone who's reached out to me before who said that he records his podcast live on video and sends it to YouTube at the same time he sends the audio to his audio platforms, and he gets a lot of discovery on his podcast through YouTube. So I think this is a tremendous step forward. Now, this is not altogether new, I should say. There's a platform called tunes to tube that's been around for a while that accomplishes the same thing but the idea that you can do it with the click of a button using a platform you already use for hosting is pretty amazing i think so that's rave number one mm -hmm. rave number two um lyft you know lyft the kind of uber uber also yes, ran absolutely. <laughs> that uh, used to have the mustaches mustache. on the front of their yeah. cars which is why i would never be caught dead in a lift unless in fact i was caught dead um they're doing something interesting um uh, in association with the uh, uh, with the premiere of Ghostbusters, 
Uh, Lyft launches Ghost Mode with Sony Pictures to celebrate Ghostbusters' release. You no longer need a jumpsuit and a proton pack to hitch a ride on the Ecto-1, the vehicle from Ghostbusters. In celebration of summer's highly anticipated reboot of Ghostbusters in theaters July 15, today Lyft and Sony Pictures announce a collaboration to launch Ghost Mode, an option on the Lyft app that will offer Ecto-1 rides to passengers in various cities across the country. (laughs) This is just terrific. I mean... (laughs) Because if you think about it, what is Lyft? We talked about Lyft before, didn't we? In association with oh, the yeah. uh, yep. Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, Lyft is trying to come up with ways that people can think about Lyft differently from the way they think about Uber. Yep. That they can think about Lyft, period, frankly, in a world where Uber seems to dominate. Um, and um, I just think this is fantastic. Uh, and the idea that people aren't going to talk about the opportunity to ride in the Ghostbusters mobile, of course they're going to talk about that. Who doesn't want to ride in the Ghostbusters mobile <laughs> if you can, right? That's right. So that's just another, I thought, great move this week that is one part newsjacking, one part cross promotion, and all parts fabulous. I'm with you. Perfect. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks to discover us. You can also catch us at art19.com, the new hosting home of Media Unplugged, Tom. Yeah, listen, we'll send them a box of cereal if you review it instead of... You know. I know, they gotta, they got to have a checkbox <laughs> to, get us over to get us over to YouTube, though. Exactly. Radio, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the, American, the venerable American Marketing Association. Absolutely. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. If there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the one-of-a-kind producer of Media Unplugged, Mr. Jeff Schmidt. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at Jeff-Schmidt.com. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you so much for listening. Media Unplugged.